Good morning. Um, please stand if you are able. Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 20, verses 1 through 11. Please follow along in your own Bibles with the text on the screen behind me, or simply listen as the passage is read aloud. There are also a couple of Bibles on the cart in the back if you need one. And the scripture reads, Then God gave the people all of these instructions. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any other God but me. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. You must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse his name. Remember to observe the Sabbath, the Sabbath day and keep it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock, and any foreigners living among you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them, but on the seventh day he rested. This is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Okay, if you missed it earlier, uh, my name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors at High Rock, and it's great to be worshiping with you. And uh, if you're new with us today, then we're especially glad you've joined us and uh, hope that you feel welcome among us. We would normally have uh, a meal after service because, you know, families eat together. Uh, but this Sunday, especially after last Sunday and all of the work that Soul Food did, uh, Soul Food team has taken a rest, and we'll be back to our normal meal uh, next week. So, uh, over the last few months, we have been studying uh, the story of the Exodus. Our two churches are in this season of change and transition, and so we've been looking back into the story of God's people who were also in a time of change and transition, and we have been uh, hearing from their story and then trying to take the moments from their story that might apply to our own and, and think about what it is like for us in the midst of that informed by them. Uh, and today and then next Sunday, we come to the conclusion of this sermon series as we uh, look at what is not the ultimate conclusion of the story of the Exodus and Israel's journey out of Egypt, but we are ending with what is a, an extremely significant milestone, uh, and that is the giving of the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. Today we will cover uh, Commandments 1 through 4, and then next Sunday we will cover Commandments 5 through 10, uh, and that will be our conclusion of the story of the Exodus for now. So today we are looking at the first, second, third, and fourth commandments. But before we look at them individually, uh, I want to walk through actually a number of things that kind of uh, that set this up and help inform us about the commandments in general, including these four. 
uh, beginning with the context into which God speaks these commands. If you look at uh, chapter 20 in the book of Exodus, it immediately begins with the initiation of the commandments. Um, But it's important for us to remember that these commandments are given in a specific context to the people of Israel arriving at Mount Sinai to meet with God. Uh, I don't know how many of you remember this from months ago, but uh, back in kind of the middle to late part of January, Pastor Joseph preached from Exodus chapter 3, which tells the story of the burning bush where Moses is uh, out tending his sheep, and all of a sudden there is this, this theophany, this uh, supernatural arrival and experience of the divine in the midst of this bush that is burning but not consumed. And this is the moment when God first appears to Moses and first calls him uh, to go back to Egypt to uh, confront Pharaoh and, and to tell Pharaoh that he is to let God's people go. And if you remember, that experience that Moses has with God through the burning bush happens near Mount Sinai. And there are a couple of stories of that story, a couple of features of that story, that I think are important or at least related to uh, our story today. One is that when God speaks to Moses through the burning bush, one of the things God tells Moses in that moment is, stay away from this bush. Stay where you are and don't come near because this is holy ground. My presence is here and for your own protection, keep a distance. Stay where you are. Don't come near me. The second kind of notable feature is that then God goes through a process of actually introducing himself to Moses, saying, this is who I am. I am the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And and he explains to him who he is, right? He gives himself kind of a, a proper introduction. So he says, keep a distance and let me introduce myself. And it's incredible, I think, now that after Moses had returned to Egypt, confronted Pharaoh... After all the plagues, after the Passover, after that nighttime escape from Egypt, after the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke led them to the wilderness, after the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea and the miraculous manna from the sky and the miraculous water from the rock, this enormous kind of treasure of stories and experiences, after all of that, Moses is right back where he started. Except this time he didn't bring a flock of sheep. He brought the nation of Israel. And just as Moses first met God on this mountain and experienced his power and his majesty and his holiness, and just as Moses was told in that moment to keep a distance and not to come close, now it is God's people who have come to that mountain and who are experiencing his power and his majesty and his holiness and who are told to keep a distance from him. Because God is going to display to them in numerous ways who he is and what he is like and what a covenant relationship with him will be like. If you read chapter 19 through, it sets the scene for the Ten Commandments, for not for the content of them, but for the giving of them. 
you find that Israel comes to the base of Mount Sinai, but they are not allowed to put a foot onto the mountain. Moses alone is allowed to enter onto the mountain and to meet with God. And in chapter 19, after God gives him direction, Moses comes to the people. He tells them, uh, prepare yourselves, because in two days there's going to be something crazy that happens. So you should get yourselves ready for that. Uh, If you're having sex, stop having it for the next couple of days and prepare yourselves for what is about to happen. Because God, the God that we have followed to this place, he is going to come and show up in a way that you have not experienced him before. And so you want to be ready. And then after the two days have passed, God arrives in this dark cloud that covers Mount Sinai. There is thunder, there is lightning, there is the blowing of a ram's horn and it's starts loud and only gets louder, and the people are terrified and amazed at God's power and his majesty and his holiness. Chapter 19 is just this ridiculous experience of God's awesome power with this thunder just, you know, pounding around them and this lightning flashing before them and this the fire and the smoke and the cloud that consumed the mountain and this blaring ram's horn that just gets loud like just gets it builds it crescendos in its power all of it overwhelming the senses of the people as they observe and experience the awesome power of this god who has rescued them and then From the thunder and from the lightning and from that blaring horn, God gives them what in Hebrew is called ten words, what we call the ten commandments. And a few just final things in terms of introduction for these commandments that are helpful for us. Number one, these commandments are not what makes Israel God's people. They already were, right? Moses, go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. They, are already, they already belong to him. It is not these commandments that introduce the relationship or make them his people. That was established long ago through Abraham and, and beyond. So that is already there. Verse two, Number two, in verse two, where we read, I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. Oftentimes when we talk about the Ten Commandments, we forget that line entirely and we just jump into, you shouldn't have any other gods before me. But if you look at it in the Hebrew and in the Jewish tradition, this is the beginning of the first commandment. I am the Lord your God who rescued you. For, like It's part of the command, therefore, have no other gods beside me. And we'll get into that in just a second. But that is not a throwaway line. It is an incredible part of the foundation for the beginning of these commands. Number three, and this is probably the one that we should hear the deepest. These commands are not given, not given, as a way for us to then receive God's love, or provision, or salvation. They are given after all of that has already been received and provided. These are not laws that we follow 
so that God will do something good for us. They are a joyful offering from our God who has already saved us. This is also true when you look in the New Testament. There is a new command, right, that is given by Jesus that we should love one another. But we're also told in the New Testament that we love because he first loved us. That has already been established in what he has given to us. And now we do that. Now we have this command to love one another because he has first loved us. So this is not a command that we follow so that we will receive something. It's that he has already freely given and we have received. And now we find, okay, and here's how we enter into this relationship and and participate in this covenant. Uh, And lastly and not least, uh, these commands are corporate In their communication, they are issued to the whole, but they are personal in their application, even in the sense in which the words you should, right? And this is written like for you in particular. You, not all of you together should have no other God. You specifically and individually should have no other God in my presence. These are, they're communal in presentation, but they're entirely personal in application. So you don't get all, or you can't say, well, in general, our community doesn't do this. So therefore, I am okay in this little tiny moment. No, no, no. Like every one of these is specifically meant for you individually as we follow him. So uh, today we're looking at commandments one through four. Uh, most of you, I, I, I would assume, probably know this, but in case you don't or if it has slipped your mind, uh, the Ten Commandments have two different points of emphasis. The first four commands, which is what we're looking at today, are specifically focused on our direct relationship with God himself. So don't have any other gods before me. Don't make any idols or images that you worship. Um, Don't take my name in vain. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Um, So those first four commands are all there. Then the last six commands, which we're going to look at next week, define our relationship with one another. Honor your parents. Don't kill each other. Don't have sex with somebody else's spouse. Don't steal from one another. Don't lie to one another. Don't covet what someone else in the community has. And so there is this kind of two-part breakdown in the Ten Commandments between love for God and love for each other. This is what then, of course, forms the foundation for Jesus' response in Matthew 22 when he is asked, which of these is the greatest command? And Jesus says, you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, strength, right? You have to love God and you should love your neighbor as yourself for these two, right? The entire law and its demands are based on those two commandments. So you can see even in Jesus' New Testament response, he's just encapsulating or simplifying what we have in the Old Testament Ten Commandments, part of it in our direct love for love God and love your neighbor. And let me add, sorry, I'm almost done, and we're going to actually look at a commandment. Let me add just one last thought here. My observation is that... um, whether it's based on uh, personality or culture or political party or whatever it is, my observation is that people often struggle to adequately assign value and conviction to 
both of those priorities. And I think this is true for both churches and for individuals, right? I think it's communally and personally, meaning there are some Christians who are really good at focusing on the first four commandments. They're, they're really good at loving God with all of their heart and their soul and their mind, and they pray all the time, and they read all the time, and they honor the Sabbath, and they do everything that they can to, to have that relationship with God. They are in communication all the time, and there is, there's a lot happening right there, right? And they're, that's, they're good at that, and they don't, you know, they don't work on the Sabbath. They pursue their rest. They're they're, they're very good at loving God, but sometimes those people aren't as good at uh, loving their neighbor. They aren't as compassionate as, as you might hope or as kind or you know, gentle or patient as you might hope with someone who shows such great love for God himself. But the same is true on the other side. There are some Christians who are really good at loving their neighbor. They work really hard not to violate their neighbor in any way. And beyond trying not to violate them, they work really hard to, to love and support and encourage and nurture their neighbor. They are others-focused, and they thrive in that, and they're excellent at it. But they don't always take the first four commands as seriously as they take the last six and we might hope that they would have a deeper fear of the Lord, but that's actually not something they understand or, or, or embrace. And so I don't want to stereotype too much here, um, but I think after 11 years of pastoring this church, I can say for High Rock, I don't know the folks at Marshall enough yet to, to dig deeply into that, so I don't want to speak about that with any level of insight. But at least for High Rock, I can say that I think that there are a number of us who fall into that second category. We're good at loving our neighbor. We take those last six commands very seriously. We don't murder with weapons, and we try not to murder with our words. We don't steal, and in fact, we try to be quite giving and generous with our neighbor. We don't lie. In fact, I think we actually try to practice radical authenticity and vulnerability and really tell the truth about ourselves in ways that are, are helpful, and, and you can kind of go down the list. But I think we take the first four commands that deal with God less seriously. We know the fourth commandment says to honor the Sabbath. And while we have a general desire to rest for one day of the week, we don't embrace the reality of that day as an opportunity to express our love for our Savior, right? We don't, we don't love the Lord our God with our, in, the, in the sense of taking the Sabbath seriously and enter into it. Uh, we have a general idea that we're not supposed to take his name in vain, but we haven't done much to deeply consider what that would mean. And what changes that might demand from our lives and the way that we speak and the words that we use. We don't take those first four commands as seriously as we do the last six. We would never murder someone. We would never steal. We, would, we try really hard not to lie. We're not going to sleep with someone else's spell. Like, we take those like how, not to treat, how to treat someone else really seriously. And the first four, I think we know them in we want to obey them, but our level of kind of devotion to them is maybe a little below 
uh, where that is. And so I think there is particular opportunity for us today as we hear from God's words, as we see these great commands, uh, to briefly consider and take seriously commands one, two, three, and four. So the first command, uh, and we will include the introduction because it is included in the Hebrew version of the command, is as follows from verses two through three. Command number one, I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any other God but me. The first command is, is what I would call the organizing principle for the rest of the commands. And the organizing principle is that there is no God but Yahweh. He's it. There's nobody else. There is one God. The God of Israel is the only other, is the only God, and 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 we shouldn't obey follow, celebrate, and I would we'll get into it in other texts later in Exodus, or even mention the other God. Right? They, they don't exist. They're not real. There is no other God. You are to have no other God but me. The organizing principle for your life and for these commands is that the God whom we serve is the only God, and therefore every other part of your life is submitted to God. He organizes your life. You have a question about your money? It is organized around him. You have a question about your family? It is organized around him. You have a question about your job or about your health or about a relationship? All of them are organized around him. There is no other God, right? He is the center of all, and we simply revolve, but it, he is the organizing principle. So whatever it is, the answer to the question is rooted in that organizing principle, that there is one God and everything is submitted to him. And I have uh, mentioned this before, but I'll repeat it in case you've missed it or forgotten it. This command was particularly important because it was spoken into this polytheistic culture that, that welcomed and, and entertained many gods. The English version that is used here is often, you shall have no other gods before me, which implies sometimes, at least in our English reading, that we are to make God our highest priority, which isn't wrong, but is incomplete. The real meaning of this phrase is, you should have no other God in my presence. Like, nowhere. This is how kings would be treated, right? When you went into the room with the king, you didn't, you didn't look around at the other, like everything, he was the only king in the room and you, everything was centered around him the entire time. Like everything revolved directly around that king. And so you should have no other gods in my presence. Like, like they are, they're, they're not to be here. And this was, again, particularly important because in these kind of polytheistic cultures who recognize the reality of many gods, when two warring nations would go to war, one would beat the other one, and then they would bring in the representations of their god into some room, maybe as they were signing some truce or whatever, and they would take the god who had, of the people who had won the war, and they would elevate it, or they would bow the other one prostrate before it, and you would say, oh, this god is superior to this god, or we submit our god before your god. And he says, I don't want 
any gods before me. I don't want anyone coming into the room and bowing. Like, they don't exist. I don't, I don't recognize that that's not real, so keep it out. So that, that first commandment was deeply important in that, uh, you know, early kind of uh, polytheistic religious culture. And so uh, the call to us, as we seek to obey the first commandment, is to examine our lives and to see, is there any other God in our life? Not just any other God more important. That, that's not the question. Is there any other God at all as we examine our life? Is there anything in my life that I worship, that I, that I am submitted to? And so is, is every part of your life centered around God? Is your Sabbath centered around God? We'll come back to this in just a moment. Is it focused on him? Are there other priorities in the room that day? Is there, is there anything else that is also there? Because it's his day and it's holy. And it's set apart. So nothing else. It's not just that it's the best and biggest part of the day and then there are other no 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 no. it's only him so on your sabbath is is he the organizing principle for the day do we take that seriously is your body and your sexual life centered around him right is is every part of that submitted to who he is and what he has said? Are your words centered around him? This is my area of greatest weakness. I have, I have a hard time. If you know me, I have a hard time controlling my tongue. And I'm on the line constantly between holiness and disgust. I, I just, I, it's a struggle, like a genuine struggle for me. I, I have, it, it's my... How do I make sure that everything that comes off the tip of this tongue is centered around the organizing principle of the reality of who God is and what he has called me to? Are your relationships, is your forgiveness centered around him alone? And what he has required in scripture, i.e., you forgive every time, all the time. It doesn't matter. Is that the organizing principle for the way that we view relationships? Or are there other gods in the room that are vying for our attention, our affection? That's commandment number one. And it is the organizing principle for those that follow. The second command, which I'm only going to mention very briefly here, uh, comes in verse 4, and it reads, You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything, and here's the part I want you to hear, in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. In the ancient Near Eastern world, the creation was often um, divided up into three different sections. And there was a, a god that was kind of the, the master of one and another god that was a master of another. And then there were sub-gods and sub-deities all underneath. But they were just in one section, just in the heavens, or just on the earth, or just under the earth. And so we are told not to make any image that we then worship as a representation of God, which we believe God comes and dwells. 
Religions have long created these physical images and icons, and they worship then in, in kind of direct violation of the second command. Even as Moses was on the freaking mountain up there meeting with God, what were the Israelites doing down below? Oh, where's Moses? Hey, do you have some gold? Let's build a calf. Let's worship it. Like, we are so ridiculous in our minds. Like, even when he is meeting with that big, beautiful thunder, right? What are they doing? They're melting their gold and building a calf because we like to worship things, especially physical things. Celebrities, it doesn't matter. We like to worship something physical that we can see and touch and maybe taste. And like, that's what we like to do. And, we're, and God is spirit. And so, no, you don't get to make anything physical right? And it doesn't matter which area of life. It's not that you can worship him really well, you know, and not make graven images in the heavens, but then maybe on the earth. No, no, no. In every single part of your life across, again, the organizing principle, in every possible area, you don't get to worship anything else. Only God, right? Nothing else. So no other physical thing, whether you make it, whether somebody else makes it, whether it's presented to you, whether it's near or far, it doesn't matter. You don't get, so I'm sure there are some good reflections for us to have on that. But given the constraint of time, I'm just going to move on to three and four, where I think there is perhaps need for more serious examination. Uh, The third commandment comes in verse seven, and it reads, you must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Hear the second sentence. Don't, don't, Don't let the second sentence escape you. The Lord will not let you go unpunished. If you misuse his name. I'm just going to repeat that one. You must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. And he will not let you go unpunished if you do. The traditional way that we're used to hearing it is you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. Uh, Three ways, there are, there are different ways in which we can misuse the name of the Lord. I want to just highlight them briefly. The first is uh, you can misuse the Lord's name. You can take it in vain <clears throat> as an oath or covenant. I swear to God. And then either you pay no attention to the oath that you just made, i.e., I swear to God, but you're lying about the thing that you're swearing to God about, right? So that's clearly using his name in vain, invoking the name of the divine, and then lying about the thing that you're invoking the name of the divine for. So that's one way of, like, of in, in category one, that's subcategory A. Um, or, I swear to God, I, you, you invoke the name of God as an oath, but then you actually mean to make no oath about it at all, right? So you bring the name of the divine into the conversation. I swear to God, like, I, and then you say something frivolous and meaningless that has nothing to do with invoking the name of the divine about an oath or covenant. So that's, that's way one that we can uh, misuse or take the Lord's name in vain. Uh, the second way that we can do that is um, as frivolous talk, right? God's reputation, he took his name very seriously. His entire reputation was directly tied to his name. Like, this is who I am. So much so, right, that when you look at the early participants in Jewish faith, like they wouldn't even put the name of God into text or say it with their mouths. So sacred and holy was, so serious was his name 
that you wouldn't even speak it out loud or write it in a text. You would find different ways around it. You'd use different terms, Adonai or something, to try to stay away from the actual name of God. So, so deep and profound it was. And so a meaningless declaration of the name is a way of taking it in vain, right? So just saying, anyway, so here's a story where I was young and immature. About 11 years ago, we planted this church. About 10 and a half years ago, I had this new strategy. So just admittedly, when I hear people say, oh my, um, and then they follow with his name, um, it really bothers me, and I'm sure that there are some folks in the room who do it. I know there are, and you've done it in front of me. And I've judged you deeply and thought, they will not go unpunished. <laughs> but earlier in my life, when I was immature, um, and we had first planned the church, I decided, you know, I, I need to find a way. I want to say something to people, but I don't want to come across as like the judgy, oh, gosh, it's not such a big deal, you know. Like, why are you bothering me? But it really bothers me a lot when it happens. So I decided that when... People I knew who were Jesus followers, not in random conversation with people at the store, but when I knew someone was a disciple and I heard them say that, that I would just scream the F word in their face so that they could have that sense of, oh, oh my gosh, that I have when they say that. So I was at Soul Food. I was at Soul Food on like week six of the church plants. And this young woman, who we have not seen since that day, sadly, that's, that's funny, but not funny, was talking with me about volunteering for Kids Rock at a table. There were just three of us there. And she was like, oh, my. And she said it. And I just went really loud right in her face. And then we haven't seen her in 10 years. I really regret that as a strategy, as a tactic, clearly. But I don't regret the value that inspired the strategy or tactic. I just, that was a bad strategy, and I have since, you know, moved away from that. But, but the value behind it, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not sorry for in the sense that, like, we have to figure out some way of taking more seriously the name of our Lord... And to, and to protect it, right, and to, and to value it and to speak it only when it's intended to be spoken about things of consequence and reality, right, not as frivolous talk that flies off the end of our tongue for no meaning whatsoever. Anyway, so that's the second way that we can misuse or use it in vain. Uh, the third way, and, and this is, this is uh, perhaps less common, but, but I, th I think no less poignant for us. The third way that we can use his name in vain, or misuse it, is as uh, in worship as a declaration of what he has said. Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 34 through, I'll go just through 36 maybe. If any prophet or priest or anyone else says, I have a prophecy from the Lord, I will punish that person and their entire family. 
You should keep asking each other, what is the Lord's answer? Or what is the Lord saying? But stop using that phrase, I have a prophecy from the Lord. For people are using it to give authority to their own ideas, turning upside down the words of our God, the living God, the Lord of heaven's armies, right? There is a, uh, there is a way that we speak in the church, which is God said to me, or God told me to tell you, and I have no doubt that there are moments which God speaks to us and tells us those things, but we must be incredibly careful when we say, God said to me, God told me to tell you, if that is you telling someone what you wanted to tell them, but saying that God told you to tell them, that is you taking the name of the Lord in vain, and you will not go unpunished, right? So that's a third way that we can take seriously the reality of God's name. And so uh, a lot of things that we consider there, but I do think that in general or just overall, we do need to more deeply consider the way that we use the Lord's name, especially as it refers to casually bringing his name into space without reason or cause, especially if we're saying, this is what he said to me, when in fact, he didn't. So uh, that's the third commandment. And the fourth and final commandment for today comes in verses 8 through 11, uh, which is long, but I'll read quickly. Remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you. It includes your sons, your daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock, any foreigners who are living among you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and the sky, and everything in them. But on the seventh day he rested. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. We have talked somewhat extensively about the Sabbath uh, here at High Rock, including a four-part sermon series back in September of 2017. So this is one, at least with some of you, that I've addressed before. I will hit the highlights here very quickly and, and we'll finish. Um, if you look at ancient Near Eastern culture, what you will find is that covenants like the one that we see in Exodus chapter 20 are not, are not uncommon. Uh, there are often covenants that were made. A lot of people had some God that they worshiped and they established some kind of, oh, here's what it means that we follow this God and here's what that looks like. And some of the things that would appear in those covenants were pretty pervasive, right? You shouldn't murder people. That was not just Israel's law. There were lots of people who thought, we shouldn't murder people. And they would write that into it. This is what it would mean for us to be a, a covenant community and, and things like that. Um, so that in and of itself was, was not necessarily uh, unique. However, this command was very particular to Israel. Remember this. Nobody else had this in their, in their commands. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy by setting it apart. Uh, Abraham Heschel, who I've mentioned before because he writes a great book about this, teaches that while the religions of the world often create physical space as the place for worship, right? Go to this mountain or this sanctuary or this temple, this city, and this is where you will meet with God and interact with him. Our God doesn't do that in the sense that, I mean, yeah, there's a temple, but it goes up and it goes down. And Jesus is very clear, like, you're not going to worship on this mountain or that mountain. It's not about these physical spaces, God created space in time. 
that's where we go. We meet with him on the Sabbath. We enter into his rest on the Sabbath. And so that, that's, the, that's the space that we enter into. Churches are fine. There's nothing wrong with physical spaces. There are lots of physical spaces that can be used for worship. But none of them are in particularly holy in and of themselves. What is holy is the Sabbath. It is a chronological space that he has set apart and said, go there. Right? This is particular for us. And so if we're thinking about the fourth commandment, we ask the question, do I take the Sabbath seriously? Do I, do I understand it as a weekly expression of my love for God, whom I follow and serve, right? Couples have date nights, weekly moments where they carve out time and say, we're not going to let the rest of life invade this space because I love you and I want to make sure that at this time I'm with you. We're focused on this. This is what we're doing. Uh, friends set up regular gatherings for a meal or for fellowship and for sharing life, and they commit to it, you know, a time on the phone or a time at a meal, and they do it because they want to share in that. Our Sabbath is a weekly opportunity for us to enter into the presence of God, to enjoy his creation, to enjoy fellowship with fellow believers, to spend time in the intimate joy of word, of his word and prayer. And so do we do that? Do we do we enter into the, the joy of the Sabbath? Do we take the fourth commandment seriously? I'm sure there's lots of things that you could reflect on and think through on, on those four different commands. Maybe there are one or two that kind of in particular stick out to you as, oh, yep, there's, that's something I don't take seriously, and I could. Uh, I don't have much time. So I, I just want to conclude. Um, I want to conclude with looking a little bit further down in Exodus chapter 20. If you have your Bibles open, um, you can look at these verses. They're, they're beautiful and they're powerful. Um, if you don't, I'm going to read the verses to you quickly. Um, and, I'll, and I'll tell you just right now, um, I, I'm, I'm preaching a lot in my last, uh, if you don't, if you're new here, I'm, I'm, I'm finishing up my time at High Rock at the end of May. And I'm preaching a lot in these last weeks that I'm going to be here. And specifically when the Hebrews series is over, um, my last three sermons are coming out of the book of Hebrews, specifically out of kind of chapters 9 through 12 in the book of Hebrews. And the way that I'm framing it is like, hey, I'm leaving. Here's the stuff I want to say before I go. It's not mean. It's nice overall. Um, but it... But it's actually tied into uh, Exodus 19 specifically and Exodus 20, what we have here. Uh, and so it all relates. So I'm, I'm saying this right now a little bit as I'm kind of building towards some stuff in the weeks ahead. Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 through 21. <clears throat> when the people heard the thunder and the loud blast of the ram's horn, and when they saw flashes of lightning and the smoke billowing from the mountain, they stood at a distance trembling with fear. And they said to Moses, you speak to us, we'll listen, but don't let God speak directly to us, or we will die. Don't be afraid, Moses answered them, for God has come in this way to test you, and so that your fear of him will keep you from sinning. And as the people stood in the distance, this, I don't know if you can see this in your mind. I don't know how your mind's... As the people stood in the distance, as the people stood far away from him, far away from God, right? Moses approached the dark cloud 
where God was. As the people stood in a distance, one man went walking towards the darkness. The people's response to the laws that are given is incredible fear. They don't want to see God's face because they have seen his power, his glory, his holiness, and they fear what it would mean for them if they had a more personal interaction with him. But Moses explains that this fear is not necessary. God's not there to destroy them. This is a part of their relationship. He wants to protect them from themselves, to to keep them from sinning. You're scared because he wants you to be scared so that you won't sin, so that you won't die, right? He does not want you. But of course, they will sin and they will die. And so Moses goes and approaches this dark cloud. Moses becomes the mediator between God and between God's people. And it's this beautiful little foreshadowing of one day when Jesus will, the crowd will stand at a distance and he will go walking into this dark cloud. He will become our mediator. He will stand between the judgment of God, the power of God, the holiness of God that would come raining down upon us. And he will receive it himself. And this is what we'll get to in Hebrews. And after he does, then he will turn and say, you don't have to stay at a distance anymore. You can come on in now. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. And so um, in just a moment, Pastor Joseph is going to lead us in communion, right? He's going to lead us in remembering again that Jesus sacrificed his body, sacrificed his relationship, entered into the fullness of death, not just physical death, but spiritual death. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so today we're going to conclude our time by remembering what Jesus has done, remembering the dark cloud that he entered into to suffer and to sacrifice for our sakes so that we might enter into the presence of God with him. So I'm going to invite Pastor Joseph to come and lead us in communion. Thank you, uh, Josh. As we prepare our hearts this morning, we remember this season on the church calendar as last week we celebrated Easter, remembering what Christ did for us, the sacrifice upon the cross, and the reality that upon the third day, when the stone was rolled away, we saw the consummation of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. He became sin for us. He became the sacrifice once and for all. And so this morning we have an opportunity to think about that sacrifice that has been made, to reflect upon the words that have been shared in the message today. I don't know about you, but as I reflect upon the words that Josh shared from the first four commandments, I'm reminded just of how an awesome and a great God that we serve. 
And if I can be honest, I recognize that I've even fallen short of reverencing him and fearing him, obeying his commands and doing as he's instructed me to do. The good news is that as we partake in this communion meal today, it reminds us that we would never be able to follow the commands and to be perfect before God in our own strength. But today as we partake in the body that was broken and the blood that was shed for us, it reminds us that through Jesus Christ, we can do all that he's called for us to do. It is his power that strengthens us, his power that enables us, and his power that makes us whole. This is an ordinance of the church, and it's an invitation for all believers, all those who have made a commitment to the lordship of Jesus Christ to partake in this meal. And we want to invite all of you who are here today who have made that commitment uh, to partake in this covenant communion meal. You don't have to be a member of Mars Hill or High Rock Church, but you do need to be a member of the Universal Church. The Apostle Paul, as he gives instructions for communion, invites each and every one of us to examine ourselves before we come to the communion table. And he says, if there's anything, any ought that we have, that we would get it straight. And so in just a moment, I'm going to invite us, if we would all bow our heads and close our eyes. And in just a moment, I'm going to invite us uh, to pray a prayer of repentance. And in that, we'll examine our hearts and also if you're here today and maybe you're not sure where you stand today in your relationship with God, I'm going to invite you just to pray this prayer with me. And that as we rededicate our lives to Christ, we will also be able to partake in this covenant meal together. Would you pray with me if you're able? Say, dear Lord, thank you for loving me. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for my sins. I repent today as an act of my will and I confess that I've fallen short of your glory. Cleanse me and make me whole in Christ Jesus' name. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was to be betrayed, he sat with his disciples, and as they gathered around the table, he presented before them the elements which represented the sacrifice that was to take place upon the cross. After he had given thanks, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you. In the same manner, he took the cup and said, in this cup is the new covenant of my blood. As often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. Father, we thank you for these elements which represent the sacred body that was broken and blood that was shed on Calvary for our sins. As we conclude a 
month of April and move into the month of May, may we be reminded of the strength that comes from Emmanuel's veins. And that as we partake of this bread, this unleavened bread, and as we partake of this cup, the juice and the wine, it may be strength for us to go about and to do your will. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to invite those who are helping to serve communion to come to the front. In a moment, we're going to invite you to come. There will be four stations here. You can go to any station. And at each station, you can receive uh, a piece of the bread, and you can dip it into the cup. And we'll ask that each person will take each of the elements and hold them until all have been served, and then we will receive together. Let us come and receive of the table of the Lord. On this, the Lord's day, remember we remember the sacrifice that Christ made for us, and we thank him for the strength that he provides to us to keep on daily living for him. Let us partake in the elements together. Now, Father, may we be strengthened to do your will and to go out and to glorify your name. We bless you and we honor you. In Christ Jesus' name we do pray. And everybody said, amen. Go in the peace of the Lord. Have a great Sunday and we'll see you next week, Lord willing.